Hey, greetings, and thank you so much for joining. Woohoo! It is Macro to Micro Power Hour. Guest captain interview today is Jared Dillian. Couldn't be more happy because this little uh, feature of mine that I started, I have been very fortunate to get some really good names who have some excellent calls, and Jared is one of them. Um, for those of you who are not uh, familiar from his uh, Twitter, uh, account. He has recently gone to cash and I invited him on to explain why. So welcome, Jared, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. I am just sharing a little bit so people can see a little bit here of, there you go. All right, editor, Daily Dirt Nap. You've been on Real Vision. I've watched you. I've had um, Folks tell me already that you know they've made money off you the past decade. Some of your calls have been beyond prescient, but uh, this one it, you know caught my attention because you have uh, done your podcast and your recording and your newsletter of of late, um, which was I'm trying to find the tweet, but that's all right. Going right into um, cash in your IRA. What's up with that? Well. A couple of people asked me, you know, what I had in the IRA and what I had in there is important. Uh, I didn't have any stocks in there. I had, um, it was about half high yield bonds and half preferreds. Um, and, you know, when I look at credit, the yield on the high yield index just went below 4% the other day. Um, you know, credit is pretty, I mean, it's not pretty much, it is at the all time tights. Um and, you know, I actually, you know, went into this trade uh, during the crisis. Um, this was right around the time that the Fed started its corporate bond liquidity facility. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when uh, they started buying LQD and HYG. So at the time, I said that, you know, the Fed is going to continue this liquidity program for a really long time. And I'm going to hold this until it doesn't make sense to hold it anymore. So that's where we are today. I had made about 30% on those positions. And, you know, this is, that's pretty good. I mean, we're talking about bonds and preferred stock, um, really low risk stuff. And um, yeah, it's, it's the retirement account is all in cash right now. So why did you, you know, make that move not to transition into something else? Why are you just going into cash? No equities, no thesis that you're really bullish on at all, just protection? Well, I do have equities in my non-retirement account, uh, mostly in energy and resources and stuff like that. So there are some positions I'm going to hold for the long term. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm very troubled by some of the anecdotal indicators of froth out there. Um, I just retweeted one, you know, just stuff like Google Trends for call options. You know, people searching for call options on Google, um, just stuff like just the anecdotal stuff. I heard a story today that I tweeted out. Uh, a buddy of mine had some contractors come to his house. They were talking about SPACs and crypto the whole time. They wanted to quit being contractors and just, you know, trade full time. You're seeing a lot of that these days. And, um, you know, I've just I've been highlighting all these indicators that show that, that we're probably pretty close to a market top. Now, the, the pushback I get on this all the time is, well, you know, we had Powell speak yesterday and there's no indication at all that they're going to tighten monetary policy. So what is the catalyst for the for, you know, a market top? And I don't have an answer to that. But, you know, when I look at all these indicators, 
it makes me want to go to cash and cut risk and just wait for better opportunities because cash is an opportunity to buy something cheaper in the future. So when you talk about the call buying, um, this is something that Jonathan um, Gibbons and myself of VicTech IO talk about on Tuesdays. I did this macro to micro power hour where we talk about market structure in regards to the single stock option, uh, gamma option flow that's been coming in, like the call buying. Um, do you follow market structure at all? I mean, closely? I really don't. Okay. No. Um, this has been extraordinary, obviously, the call buying and the, the options, if you will, being the tail that's wagging the dog. Um, Chris Cole has talked about this from Artemis uh, quite a bit, and we talk about it on Tuesdays often. It's more than euphoric, really lovely uh, mania to trade, but it is kind of underpinning this fragility of the market from market structure standpoint. Um, so, I mean, just today I, I tweeted the DNN. Um, which is Denison Mines, uh, lithium, if you will, Canadian uh, uranium, sorry, uranium miner. It had 350 times normal option volume running. And 99.8% and of the flow was calls. Bullish, directional calls. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, and of course, stock volume is coming along for the ride, right? So um, stuff like this has been pretty much the norm and seeking it out kind of from like a, a, a Reddit signal, if you will, um, retail is, is, you know, credited with absolutely, uh, driving much of this move. And I, I, I retweeted your chart where you have kind of like the retail, um, trader, if you will, the top of this, um, parabola on its way at, at, at signifying a top. Is this just more of your sentiment, your gut trading based on experience, or do you have any other kind of like stories that you're hearing that make you really cautious that it can can undermine the market? Well, it's it's gut trading based on experience, but you know, I have a lot of experience. I started my career in 1999 uh, on the floor of the Peacoast Options Exchange, you know, which where I got to see the bubble really ground zero for the bubble uh, back in 1999 and 2000. So I know what this looks like. I've seen it before. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 47 next month. Um, you know, if somebody who's under 40, who wasn't around for the last couple of cycles, like might not recognize this for what it is, but this is really abnormal behavior. Um, really the, the catalyst for me for getting out was the whole GameStop incident. Okay. Um, you know, when I, when I saw what, uh, retail investors did to GameStop, I mean, that, that, that chart that you have up there on your screen, you know, I actually made that in 2006 and I've had that on my computer ever since then. And just to talk about the life cycle of an investment and it's always at the top of a cycle retail piles in at the top. Um, and it's, it's not, it's not different this time. It's not different this time, but this there are some differences. This is recent stat here on um, OTC trading volumes, and in fact, uh, that's that is very different. <laughs> How elevated this is? Yeah, that's, um, that's that's penny stock volumes. Penny yeah. stock volume, but even the uh, the, sh the short um, basket, if you will, has been very you know, a, a la 1999, 2000. So this is exuberance as well, not just the GameStop, um, which has been a signal for retail, but it's also been a signal for institutions to follow this. I mean, this has been phenomenal, you know, trading of BlackBerry and, you know, AMC and 
retail left for dead on the on the vaccine rainbow. So they were already in play with the Biden bid, if you will, from September, October and into the election and the blue wave on the Georgia. This doesn't seem like it's done to me. This seems like there's still a solid rotation under the surface going from, you know, some of the growth plays into quote unquote value. What when you say you're still invested in energy, that's part of the cyclical. What else do you have that's kind of uh, going to withstand, if you will, maybe a shake and bake this year? It's really energy and value. And if you go back to the playbook from 20 years ago, um, you know, when the market peaked and then started to decline in 2000 to 2002, 2003, you know, value stocks actually outperformed. You know, I was a small investor back then. I was pretty young, but I was pretty well positioned for it. My Most of my money was in something called the Dodge and Cox stock fund, which is the oldest, boringest value fund that you can possibly have. And while everybody else was losing money during those years, I was making money. So I really think that deep, deep value is gonna be the place to be over the over the coming months and years. So this is just a lovely tweet that also just crossed my uh, DM. Schwab is receiving so many requests to turn on option trading that their usual 24 to 48 hour application turnaround is now seven to 10 days. This isn't going away. <laughs> This is definitely um, the, the call buying mania and OTC are in play. So where do you, I mean, when you talk about the value rotation, how long have you been in this trade? Because obviously this was a sentiment. Um, let me just, if I had this. I've been in the trade since about the time that the vaccine was announced. If you remember, November 9th. The first vaccine was announced. We yep. had this 15 standard deviation outperformance yep. of value over growth. And I said, yep. this is the turn in value. And that's when I started piling into value. Okay. So this is something I tracked really carefully, actually. So since September 4th is actually when my intermarket analysis triggered for that rotation from growth into value, meaning growth would just not um, outperform as well as the value move. And then when we had, you know, the blue wave, and then of course, this uh, Pfizer vaccine on November 9th, that was just hot fire flames. What hasn't taken off some of the, you know, airlines are still languishing and no clear policy on that yet. Do you have any any faith in that particular kind of the leisure industries, cruise line, airlines, um, and such? Yeah, I still I still think, you know, I call it the travel explosion trade. You know, people are going to travel in unprecedented numbers once we get vaccines. And I think that's going to happen. Um, so I, I still I still think that theme works. I, I don't know if airlines are the best way to play it. Um, you know, in my newsletter, I actually recommended uh, a way to play it today. I can't talk about it here. Um, but, you know, sure. You know, I, I think the cruise lines are kind of a mess. Um, too much debt. I wouldn't go near the cruise lines, but I think some of the airlines are a possible beneficiary, hotels, uh, the travel booking sites, stuff like that. A lot of um, time I spend with clients on the inflation expectation driving, you know, yield pop and such. Um, what's your feel on inflation, real or imagined? In other words, this is clear. We've got some pricing pressures and now um, more policy around wage inflation with $15 an hour uh, minimum wage. Where are you at with the whole inflation 
Yeah, I think we I think we turned the corner on inflation. I mean, we're already starting to, like you said, we're getting some price pressures in food. Mm-hmm. Uh, grocery bills are higher. I think that's going to spread to the rest of the economy. And, you know, a lot of people sort of underestimate the impact of what a $15 minimum wage would do. It doesn't just raise people up to $15 an hour. The people who are already making $15 an hour are going to want a raise so they're getting paid more. So wages go up all along the chain. Um, so that's that is that is a powerful inflationary force. Did you see? Um, I did tweet earlier, but it was a uh, Bill Dudley. Whether you put a lot of faith into it or not, actually did an op-ed in Bloomberg today. Um, former president of New York Fed and uh, FOMC um, chair vice chair says. Fed, despite its desire to be accommodative and boost employment, might have to pull back on stimulus sooner and with greater force than anticipated to keep inflation in check. What's, what, what's your sentiment on that and time frame too? Yeah, everybody is kind of saying that except for Powell. Um, Clarita mm-hmm. is kind of saying that. Raphael Bostic is kind of saying that. Um, you know, there's been, there's, we've sort of, if you, if you look at like what rate hike expectations were, you know, about six months ago, we were saying the first rate hike would be in 2024. Now we're saying 2023, 2022. And I think there is the possibility that the Fed could move in a more hawkish direction prematurely, um, especially if, if we start seeing some gaudy GDP numbers in Q3 and Q4. A lot of some people are saying we could print 6% in GDP. That could cause the Fed to get a little bit more hawkish. Uh, the only the only one who's not really sounding like that is Powell. Uh, his comments yesterday were sort of out of sync with everything else I've heard. And the Fed uh, funds futures is just giving a five percent chance of a rate increase this year, according to CME. So that is the signal to watch. But five percent is an outlier that I like to say outliers revert with velocity. So that uh, is very little. Powell's obviously talking that. Uh, his book, so to speak, but when do you think that this will actually start to force their hand? What level on the 10 year or inflation would actually kind of readjust? Yeah, it may not, it may not be a level. It may not be a number. Um, You know, if this sort of speculation continues over the next six months, I think the Fed has to take notice of at some point. I mean, if you go back 20 years ago, we were having these conversations about the role of the Fed. And, you know, the Fed has two mandates, price stability and full employment. But back during the dot-com bubble, people recognized that there was a bubble and there was some discussions about whether the Fed had a responsibility to pop a bubble before it got any bigger. And Greenspan said at the time that, well, you know, it's kind of hard to tell you're, you're in a bubble while you're in it. You really only know with hindsight. So I think that, you know, if, if we continue to get you know, six more months of speculation. Um, I, I think the Fed will start to take notice after a while, but ultimately, um, you know, I think it's going to come down to GDP inflation. You get inflation up to about two and a half percent. That could push them in that direction. We're already at 2.31, the highest level since January in 2013. So we're getting- Yeah, and they're doing this thing with average inflation, right? Like they're saying that they want CPI or core PCE to average 2%. Mm -hmm. So they're willing to tolerate higher levels of inflation for longer periods of time. Uh, You know, but, you know, Clarita said a couple of weeks ago that if inflation got significantly above 2%, that they'd have to take a look at it. 
So. Well, and the, the, the tips right now are at seven year highs as well. Yeah. So, but I, the, uh, the article, four more reasons to worry about inflation in uh, Bloomberg this morning with Bill Dudley, he kind of outlines, there are some really good reasons for this inflation math. Um, and the timing of, you know, a turnaround, if you will, in Fed speak would actually trigger market volatility, much like taper tantrum from 2013. Now we recovered obviously quite well, 2013, we had our best year in the S&P after all that was, you know, done digesting the move. Do you think it would be the same? Ultimately, you know, I, well, first of all, let's get back to the rate hikes for a second. So you said that there was a 5% chance of a rate hike this year. I think there's a 0% chance of a rate hike this year. If they start tightening monetary policy, they're going to do it in the form of their asset purchases. And they have to communicate this very carefully because if they screw up the communication, then the market will crash. So it really, I think it comes down to the ETF purchases, the corporate bond liquidity facility, the municipal facility, I think they have to start pairing this back very slowly. Um, They're not going to sell assets off the balance sheet. You know, they're going to do what they did before. They're going to let things mature and continue to reinvest into the portfolio. But uh, they have to be very careful about the communication. So we have a question in chat. Um, What are your thoughts? High yield credits. Hold on. Bring it up. Did you see it? What are your thoughts? Regarding this statement, high yield credit spreads at all time lows and corporate debt to GDP at all time highs. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the reason I got out of the retirement account, you know, which was mostly high yield. Um, Yeah, that is, uh, you know, I mean, look like I had a conversation with somebody about this today. There there's a there was a high yield issue today that priced with a two and a half percent coupon. It was a high double B one rating agency had it as a triple B. Um, so kind of a crossover credit, two and a half percent coupon. And this stuff is like 10 times oversubscribed because 25 percent of all debt is negative yielding and 70 percent is under one percent. So if you can get a two and a half percent coupon, it looks pretty attractive. And, you know, people have talked about the wall of money that just goes into credit like it's absolutely real. But, you know, when you throw up that statistic about spreads being at the lows and leverage being at the highs, like it, it makes makes that very unappetizing to me. So the 2% inflation is a narrow line between a rock and a hard place, Jonathan points out. Where are you? Um, I know you said you're not too worried about it, um, but as far as 2.5 with the uh, the CPI, but at what point do you think they come in and, and try and kind of tap it down also with uh, with yield cur- yield curve control. Like, what are your thoughts on this being an, a kind of a more active measure? That really comes down. Yield curve control is really a function of um, it's it's a solvency issue. It's you know how much interest expense can the federal government tolerate, and if you get tens up to between one and a half and two percent, then interest expense goes up significantly, and that's when you know, I mean, Yellen used to be Fed chair, like this coordination that we have between the Fed and the Treasury is unprecedented. So, you know, there's going to be communication there. And, you know, Yellen will ask the Fed to cap yields in order to keep interest expenses down. I don't think that happens until tens get close to 2%. I think it's going to be a while. If that does happen, uh, you'll see the dollar drop 
10 to 20 percent overnight you'll see gold skyrocket um it'll be it'll be a big deal anything that you would uh i guess look for in regards to a dollar rise before the fall well the charts the charts for the dollar are pretty constructive um you know i'm i i like the charts i don't have too strong of an opinion on the dollar that's you know the macro doom guys tend to argue about the dollar all the time on Twitter, I don't get involved in those discussions. Um, but, you know, it is a function of risk. And, um, you know, I think if we do have a sell off in stocks, then the dollar is going to get stronger. So, or China does a, a rate cut, you know, something that, you know, turns their currency um, around and causes a lift in the dollar. So there is still global QE and lots of continued uh, easing. Do you think that would be? Um, temporary or a, a bigger trend? I don't know. Okay. Um, question Jonathan also, uh, a different Jonathan. My God, we got two of them. I love it. Thoughts on leisure versus business travel. Seems like pent up demand for the former, but not as sure about the latter. Would that still play into any of your kind of, you know, vaccine rainbow theme on uh, oversold value plays? The yeah, pent up I demand mean, that comes w- with this recovery, if you will. I mean, business travel is not going to recover as strongly, but I think leisure travel will more than compensate for that. Um, you know, I I think in Q4, you could start getting 2 million passengers a day in uh, in the U.S. You know, it's kind of hard to see that right now, but uh, I, th- I think I think we could get there. So, um you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable with uh, the travel explosion thesis. What, in regards to hedges, if any, do you like to play VIX? Do you go to cash? Do you, um, the new Bitcoin, I'm sorry, old, the old God, gold, new God, Bitcoin. What's your, what's your flavor for when you hedge? So I don't currently have any hedges on outside of, uh, a couple of very small put spreads in Tesla and Facebook. That's, I mean, they're tiny. That's my only hedges. Um, I'm contemplating putting on a large hedge in the ARC funds. Um, I think that, you know, the, the options are not as liquid, but they're getting more liquid. Um, I, you know, I think that there, if there is a downturn, those ARC funds will have some serious liquidity issues because they have such concentrated positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to talk about a high velocity move down, that's probably the best place to do it. Yeah, we've seen it with GameStop. We've seen it with, with Tilroy, the, the cannabis play, you know, beautiful long right into that place of 6666 where it fell apart last uh, a few years ago. It was just concrete and then a, just like a parabola completely retraced. So that is what ARC looks like for sure. Um, what do you think? And, you know, now you can follow, you know, their, their trading desk because they report on their positions every day. <laughs> so um, it's kind of that signal. Again, we had the Reddit signal, we've got the ARC signal and it's real time, relatively speaking. So they're, they're announcing um, their positioning and folks are following. Um, the flows are also flowing strongly into those uh, ETFs. What do you think about the position of Tesla and other balance sheets uh, adding Bitcoin and that becomes, you know, more uh, more volatility to their their whole business case if they weren't already volatile? Yeah, that's, um, 
you know, that's, that's a mistake. Uh, and, it, and it's really, it's insane behavior. And I mean, if you think about if you're the CFO of a S&P 500 company, if you have cash, you want to put it in short-term liquid marketable securities. You want, you want to protect your cash position and they're putting it into the most volatile asset imaginable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's <laughs> like, I really, uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's just dumb. Like, I don't, I don't understand it. And the interesting thing is, is that, you know, Tesla was pretty strongly correlated to Bitcoin before, and now Tesla owns Bitcoin. So it's going to be even more strongly correlated. And when I look at Tesla and Bitcoin, these are two things that are impossible to value. And so when you trade them, you are trading raw human emotion. You are just trading yeah. pure risk. So um, their market cap is bigger than every single auto manufacturing company on the planet. (laughs) It makes no logical, literally, that's a factoid. Um, And the Bitcoin, um, though, balance sheet phenomenon has made and printed a lot of of money for traders and investors. That MSTR has doubled and then doubled again and then doubled again and then doubled again. So, you know, it is um, now hot to even announce that you have Bitcoin potentially on your balance sheet. Uh, we'll see if that gets regulated. Do you think it will be? Any, any, anything there in, in regulation land that they'll start to come in and- uh, I, I have opinions, but they're uninformed opinions. Uh, I'm, not really, I'm not really up on the long-term crypto thinking. You shouldn't ask me that. You okay, well, it, it, it's a speculative asset class. It, has, <laughs> it became an asset class last year. And I want to ask you about asset class because your you're, you're, um, analogs here of looking at Bitcoin and Tesla, um, I think of Bitcoin more as a commodity, if you will, but uh, hard to value in both cases. So you're comparing the two and now they're linked together. Tesla already makes up what 17 and a half percent of XLY. Um, so the passive investing model is also rebalancing all of this risk into the the, the pension funds and, and all the, the passive investing strategies. So um, market keeps going up based on this, you know, as you just said, kind of sentiment play. What about uh, SPACs, the special purpose asset corporations that have uh, also become a very exciting a space for traders and investors and accessible to retail, which normally hadn't been the case. What, what's your position or, or feeling about that whole space that has exploded in blank check IPOs? Yeah, I have positive and negative feelings about SPACs. I mean, there are some truly good SPACs, like really, really great companies that are going public through SPACs. Not a lot, probably five to 10% of them, but you're getting the opportunities to, to, analyze these businesses before anyone else has a chance to analyze them and buy them at small market caps. I mean, like Airbnb, I mean, it was like $120 billion IPO. Like it's too late. Like it it doesn't, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense to buy that IPO, but you can buy some of these great companies at like one and $2 billion valuations. So it's pretty cool. But the problem is, is that um, it's a, it's attracted a lot of imitators and mm-hmm. there's a lot of garbage out there. Uh, Paul Ryan has a SPAC, Colin Kaepernick has a SPAC now. I don't know if you saw that today. I did. Mm-hmm. Like there's, it's, it, it's, it's not, it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. Uh, next thing, you know, Pitbull is going to have a SPAC. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're making fun of it, but at the same time, it is gaining a lot 
of uh, traction with the retail trading crowd. You know, they see it, it's it's 10 bucks, 10 bucks. <laughs> I mean, this is like very, very approachable and relatable for, for retail traders now as well. And that just drives a lot of the frenzy and the celebrity CEOs, the Chamath, you know, uh, SPACs and such that are doing um, extremely well in valuations even before they they hit a target. So yes, I, I it's a small percentage and it, it, it mirrors, if you will, the sentiment of the, of the market, which is manic. Um, what's another rotation? Let's see, we, the call buying, the single stock gamma option flow has been unreal and it's continuing. The short squeeze has been unreal and I don't think it's over. Um, we've got uh, SPAC mania, we've got um, OTC euphoria, uh, the pot stocks, which justifiably did need to come off the bottom, especially with expectation of legalization and, you know, uh, and such, but they have gotten, ex the, the POTX, which is the a cannabis ETF, has risen 189%. I, I sent this yesterday, so not today, because it's come down considerably today, but yesterday was up 189% year to date. So this has also air coming out of it a little bit. Um, what else? Well, I mean, EV, electric vehicles, they still only make up like 0.3% of the global market share, but they have also taken off like hot fire flames. Um, any, any sentiment there? Because you, you said you're already exposed to energy um, as, a, as a value play. Any, I guess, interest in the, uh, the EV movement? No, really less than zero. Um, I'm really interested in fossil fuels. Um, you know, actually a prediction that I made several months ago was that the price of oil would get back to 60 bucks mm -hmm. in, in the beginning of 2021. And that happened. And I still think it's going to go higher. Um, you know, Biden has already shown that the, his administration is going to be, you know, unfriendly or hostile to fossil fuels by canceling the Keystone XL pipeline. So uh, I mean, there's going to be supply issues. A lot of rigs have been taken offline. A lot of stuff in the Permian has been taken offline. And as you get into the second half of this year, there's going to be a huge amount in demand for travel. Um, you, know, I, you know, I'm still bullish on oil. I think it could get to 80 bucks or 100 bucks from here. And don't I, there, also another um, an oil trading friend of mine, Robert McMinn, has mentioned the tail risk uh, of conflict you know this is always good to have you know some some calls further out in time on the uh, the chance that there could be increased conflict in the middle east he's actually he's a he's a daily dirt nap subscriber it's funny you mention him because usually i hear from him all the time but i haven't heard from him in several months so i'll have to check back in <laughs> yeah he he actually he sent me um uh a, a, a dm recently where the price has risen but the speculation still as far as open interest in those who actually do you know the real buyers if you will underlying have not been increasing so yeah. prices is getting a little bit ahead of where speculators are really uh, putting this. And we also have a COVID strain, right, which has mutated. And even though they're talking uh, vaccines will address it, right now it's extremely um, flammable situation in that the, the old COVID uh, cases and hospitalizations and deaths have dropped. But the new COVID strain is actually picking up and quite worrisome for March, April timeframe. So that would also impact, you know, some uh, the oil demand uh, business. 
let's see, Jonathan has another question. Can you see it? We always yeah. talk about the market, which is a mania, as you pointed out, but underlying economy, what's your take on where it really, where it's really at? Not discussed much and obviously um, top of the conversation, but yeah, what do you think it looks like for the next 12 months for the economic recovery, really? Well, I'm pretty bullish on the economic recovery, but if there's one thing that we learned from the last year, it's that the stock market is not the economy. Mm. And, you know, we said that on, when stocks were going up and the economy was a mess. And now I believe that we're going to recover economically, but stocks can also go down. So a lot of people say, well, you know, how can stocks go down? Because we're going to have this big recovery in the second half of the year. This, again, the stock market is not the economy. And it's also pulling forward a tremendous amount of this expected pent-up demand and expected, re, you know, resumption of normalcy, right? And earnings have been pulled forward. Oh my gosh, have they been pulled forward? <laughs> so, um, at what point does it become priced to perfection? And we simply, by the gravity of, you know, just no more natural buyers start to fall. Do we necessarily need an event um, or just? trapped longs. You know, this has happened. We've seen some parabolas that have crashed um, strongly. And uh, right now, there doesn't seem to be anything else really event driven. We've got some policy passing talk, but it keeps getting kicked down the road. And as a result, gold really hasn't risen um, like it was expected with all this new money printing. What's your, what's your, your position, I'm sure, long-term gold, but uh, more granular, when do you think it'll take off again? When do I think what will take off? Gold. Oh, geez. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, gold trades really technically. And a lot of people get really hung up on gold because there will be some positive catalyst and nothing happens. And then three months later, there will be no catalyst and gold will go up for no reason. So um, I, I think it's I think it's consolidating right now. It could consolidate for another six more months. I mean, gold is about twenty five percent of my portfolio. It's my biggest position. I've held it since two thousand five, um, and you know it's outperformed stocks since then. And I think it's going to continue to outperform over time. So, um, do you have any portion of that that's in miners? I mean, it's just gold. How how do you manifest that trade? Uh, it's mostly GLD and GDX. Okay. So it is mine. And silver as well. Do you have any position on commodities right now that have been really strongly performing besides oil, um, and the precious metals complex, uranium, um, platinum, palladium, uh, you know, other, other metals and mining space that are looking like they're going to do really well this year. Yeah, I've had a position in uranium for about a year and that's starting to do well. Um, it's a pretty big position, so I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah. Any other commodities? No. Nope. nope. Just, and your energy, um, is this mostly in oil or actual, you know, integrated or, you know, other types of, of how do you kind of express that? Uh, basically, when when energy stocks were on the lows, uh, I bought a pretty good sized position in upside calls. And now the calls are deep in the money. They're hundred Delta calls. And that's my position. Okay. So you're holding 
if you will, and you really think oil has a chance to get 280 this year? I think it's a possibility, yeah. Without any need for political risk or premium yeah. in that price, just on yeah. its own merits of demand. Yeah. Okay. Um, bonds, what's your, what's your, your feel for this particular trade, which is struggling so as uh, yields grind higher? Um, well, I'm talking about well, TLT, you know, the, the, the one that we can easily access. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people get sideways on bonds. Uh, you know, bonds trade on sentiment, just like anything else. And, uh, people are pretty bearish on bonds here because it's been a one-way trend for the last few months. Um, I'm actually, uh, uh, on the bullish side, I was thinking about, um, buying some calls on thirties just for a spec trade. Um, you know, if, if, Look, I mean, if stocks collapse in the next couple of weeks, you could get yields on tens back to 0 0.8, 0 0.9. Um, I think that's definitely a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the curve could flatten for sure. What do you think are the biggest risks right now? Top three. Uh, there's only one risk, and it's, um, it, it's, it's just the level of speculation that we have. Okay. That's, that's, that's the one risk. Um, you know, I'm, I'm focused on that to the exclusion of all else. So I know you are treating, which is a lot of fun, actually. Your Twitter feed right now is anecdotal evidence of this speculation. And I can see it as well. I mean, I, I run a live trading room, so I'm looking at stocks all day long with clients. And this is extremely heavy, not just the call buying um, that like the one I just mentioned with DNN. I and mean, that was just this morning. <laughs> but it, it has been a theme for months now as more retail traders uh, pile in and also as the uh, the hedge funds, the long short funds are trying to follow and make some coin. Um, Craig asks the question, at what point do you think we will start to see money velocity starting to move higher, which will be the precursor for real inflation and likely a rise in bond yields? Well, I kind of thought it would already happen. And I thought, you know, going back to 2008, we started quantitative easing. Everybody thought there would be inflation. Um, they got short bonds, they got long gold, the gold worked, the bonds didn't. But there, there was this big inflation trade that lasted from 2008 to 2011, but there was never any inflation. And my theory was that this time it would be different because of the stuff we're doing on the fiscal side, because of the PPP loans and the enhanced unemployment benefits and the stimulus checks, and that this money was finding its way directly into the economy and that would increase velocity, but that hasn't happened, but all velocity continues to crash. So I don't really know. I don't know the answer to that. But you're not outright bearish bonds. You're just disinterested. Yeah. Okay. Um, cannabis over crypto. What's, I mean, do you have any speculation since policy drives a lot of economic movement here and cannabis has been moving very strongly of late, any particular sector that you think will get a infrastructure, you know, uh, the, the whatever that, that are going to get kind of like the nod and have some follow through this year. Yeah, I think infrastructure is going to work. I do have one infrastructure play um, and that's been doing pretty well. And I think it'll continue to do well. Um, yeah. I mean, we're going to spend money this year. I think the deficit is actually going to be bigger this year than it was last year. And I think probably a trillion of that is going to be infrastructure. I do think we get an infrastructure bill so I think those trades continued to work up until the second half of this year. Why the second half? What, what do you predict is, is likely towards, you know, August and beyond? 
Well, it's, it, it, you know, by the rumors, sell the news, you know, okay. once, once the bill happens, then, you know, you'll want to get out of the trade. So do you, do you have any uh, sentiment on China? I mean, that was just funny when he, uh, Biden spoke with uh, President Xi, Chairman Xi this morning for two hours and they talked infrastructure and, you know, that made the, the news headlines. But um, in regards to the whole impact of the, not just relations and trade, um, but there's a lot going on right now with the chips and, you know, supply issues. I'm talking semiconductor. Any, any play there on China? Well, I think the one thing to understand about China is that, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of borrowing from the Kevin Warshop ed, but I think it was a whole, totally accurate. You know, when China looks at the United States with its huge deficits and its quantitative easing, I mean, they see that financially we're kind of a mess. And China has, in its government bond market, they have three and a half percent real yields, you know. Um, and I think what China is trying to do- in And we're negative one percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what China is trying to do in a, in a subtle sort of way is to become the alternative to the U.S. financial markets and mm -hmm. to create a financial system that is in competition with the U.S. And ultimately, I think they're succeeding in doing that. That actually, I remember um, tweeting that they we did that crossroads actually last year, so more money flowing there. Um, so they have definitely they're they're picking up that that theme and running with it. Do you think this will uh, impact the the semiconductor space? This uh, chip supply issue that's causing GM to you know close plants and and you know others concerned about. It just everything related to chips. It made it made the market basically go up, um, and we haven't, you know, SMH and the whole group, if you will, has been on um, fire because it touches so much of what we consume every day. At what point does it become a concern regarding supply disruption? I have I have not been following that issue at all. Okay, I have not been following it. Well, it might, it might be a good one. <laughs> That's a, a little risk, if you will, on the horizon for um, supply disruption. What I wanted to also find out, let's see, you got a question here in Q&A someplace else. Oh, are you long-term bull market? Other than the pullback that, you know, we can obviously have um, this year and you, you see some concerns for that. Are you long-term economic growth, bullish the stock market? Any no, not really. I mean, when you get valuations to these levels, then forward returns go down. Um, so, I mean, we could have a period of 10 years where you have low single digit returns or even zero returns. And we've reached those levels of valuation. So uh, I'm not I'm not bullish long term at all. The what was it just recently? It did the crossover also in regards to. Um, Ah, the yields before they were really advantageous for S&P over, in other words, stocks were, you know, returning better yields than, um, than bonds. And now we've actually started to turn the corner with that bear steepening with, of the yield curve. Uh, do you think that will, I don't know, inspire some of the rotation back into, uh, into bonds? No, I, I mean, we, we have a period of, 
negative real interest rates. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, look like our bond market is pretty attractive on a relative basis, because as I said, you know, there's a lot of negative yielding government bonds in G10. Um, But, you know, for me, it's, it's not attractive at all. So what is your, other than gold, what's your, what's your second largest area of uh, holdings that you're bullish on? Probably energy. And energy. Yeah. What was the question they had? And obviously cash. <laughs> Any biotech? Any exposure there? Any interest there? It's been absolutely explosive for new drug therapies, for uh, Alzheimer's, um, oncology. It has been definitely an area of speculation, especially low float, low priced biotech. But any any views on that? No, it's not really what I do. Nope. No. You have, yeah, definitely the, the semis though. I'm curious if you have any uh, look into that, what you come up with, because this is um, an area kind of when I looked at semiconductors, it kind of got us into this rally a few years ago. And it seems to be a little bit in distribution mode um, at the top for semis, but they have nothing has rolled over. The market is still firm. Volatility is subdued, but still not dropping below 20 for VIX, which is unheard of. Um, any, you, when you trade, uh, and you see market is moving, you know, lower with gusto. Do you ever put on volatility trades? Uh, I tend to avoid it. I mean, but this isn't unprecedented. I mean, if you go back to, you know, the volatility regime we had in the late nineties and the early two thousands, I mean, it was, it was basically the same, you know, people at the time, you know, you would read about this imbalance in the striking price, right? Like they would say that the range for the VIX was between 20 and 30. So we had a high volatility regime back then. And then after that, we had a low volatility regime. And now we're back in a high volatility regime. So, you know, for all, for all kinds of different reasons. Do you think this is going to be, um, you know, resuming a lower volatility regime anytime soon? Short sellers were kind of taken out in body bags last February, March, and they have been tested again. It, you know, with the game stops, if you will, they're not really coming back in force to um, to pressure VIX lower. Although Yellen's famous for it, uh, on the short selling side, any opinions there? Uh, well, when you talk about volatility, um, I mean, if you were to trade the VIX, and the VIX is very hard to trade because the carry is so bad. Um, but you know, if if you were to, if you were to get an opportunity to buy um, VIX futures in the low twenties. I think that would be a pretty good opportunity. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of convexity here, and if the if the market were to drop twenty percent, you would see the VIX go to fifty, sixty, or higher. So, um, yeah, I would I would be a buyer of volatility in the low twenties. This is still expected to not produce um, any surprises, but the next FOMC meeting, are anything you're looking for? you know, out of, if you will, language or, uh, or, you know, run up into FOMC? You know, any clues we get about the Fed are probably not going to come from an FOMC meeting. They're probably going to come in the speeches. So or I just- the articles, yeah. <laughs> like the Dudley article today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just kind of keep an eye on those types of communications. And I don't, you know, you, you have to, when you look at Bill Dudley's article, you kind of have to look at that skeptically because you have to know he's in contact with current Fed officials 
And if that's a message that they intended to send, uh, not actually coming from the Fed, I mean, that's that it's very possible that that could have been intentional. How much weight do you get it? Inflation is a concern. Here are four more reasons why. Bill Dudley. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very possible. So a little flag up the, the flagpole. It, um, getting question next 20 years, which is a big, big, big horizon, but we talked about China a little bit. Uh, do you believe we, there's going to be US or China? Like China. So anything to change it? What materially needs to change to reverse that course that so many are on it's, and it's, believe? It's almost a political question. I mean, we have to stop with top-down management of the economy and we have to let the economy go grow through small businesses and individuals uh going back to where we were in the 80s um you know it, powell for example like his comments yesterday you know they're going to continue with these with this monetary policy until unemployment gets to below four percent you know, it's a very top-down approach. And right now we have 10%, really, not the six point something. It's it's the, un, the ones who have left and such. I mean, that's that seems like that's going to be some work to get down there to yeah. that 4% again. Not realistic. Yeah. Not realistic. Um, not, I mean, not with the current, um, I don't know, backdrop, if you will, of still fear and t- recovery time. And yes, it's not going to be the normal recovery, but uh, wage inflation, um, definitely price increases. This is pretty clear. What do we have last time? PMI manufacturing higher. <laughs> There's, oh, I missed it. I had a whole bunch of uh, on the data on that side, but basically the price pressures are still growing. Um, Jan is asking any views on international allocations, diversification apart from what you know sector specific ETFs might provide. Because right yeah. now, some of those the, some of those ETFs are exposing, you know, to Tesla, for example, XLY, 17.5% weighting, and now $1.5 billion on the balance sheet. <laughs> it's like a little, little funky. Yeah. If you look at valuations here and overseas, I mean, U.S. stocks are way more expensive nowadays. And there's been historical precedent for this. I mean, if you go back to the late 80s, early 90s, Uh, international stocks were more expensive, particularly Japan, and that reverted to the mean over time. So, um, you know, uh, Japan is a big focus of mine. That's actually, that's probably for me a bigger position than energy. That's probably my second biggest position. Um, You know, Japan is a big value play. Like they have really, really low valuations. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's a great place to be. I would, I would much rather invest ex-U.S. now than in the U.S. Well, you're not alone in that. Emerging markets um, as well. But uh, China, Japan, where, what other country-specific allocations? Japan. Japan, Japan, Japan. Low value, low value. But this is, you know, again, active yield curve control. <laughs> um, and you're not seeing any of the exposure risk from... Uh, from China's actions, in other words, devaluate the currency. It's kind of like they all have to follow. There's a little bit of that. Um, uh, I don't want to call it manipulation into the the uh, exchange here, but it is helping that trade tremendously as well. So, is does that come into consideration when you say Japan, or is it just 
you're looking at the value of the businesses and saying they're undervalued relative to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's why Warren Buffett made that investment into the commodity trading companies, you know, and, and that hasn't worked out great yet. And, and people are kind of making fun of him for that. But I think that's ultimately going to turn out to be a great trade. Well, they also, you know, made fun on the airlines, but that's trying to pop up as well. Um, you have right now today, I see a whole bunch of fun anecdotes in regards to the 20 year olds and such leaving construction and going into day trading. Um, this is a fun thread that you've been on of late. What, what's your point that you're trying to prove with this, that the level of excess obviously is high, but at what point do you kind of say, this is, this is it. We, we've crescendo. <laughs> what are you looking for? I think, I think we're there. I think we're there. When you, if you look at penny stock volumes, if you look at 38 million call options trading in a day, like I think, I think if we're not at the peak right now, we're probably there within a couple of weeks or months. And then same with Bitcoin. Do you, do you throw it all together? So I, I own Bitcoin um, up until about a month ago. Uh, I owned it from 10,000 to 40,000. And uh, I did a pretty good job trading out of it. Now it's trading higher. Um, Bitcoin is a proxy for risk, you know, and also Bitcoin leads risk. If Bitcoin trades off, stocks are usually two weeks behind. Yep. If Bitcoin absolutely. trades up, stocks are usually two weeks behind. So. Yep. Absolutely. So um, did you go, you called a particular Bitcoin high the last time, right? 2017, then it came down. Yeah. You went back in, um, you sold recently at 40. It's now almost 48. Well, it is not almost, it's 48K. Uh, at what point do you think that's going to roll over again? Uh, it's, I don't na know. it's nature. It, it, it is absolutely nature for it to, you know, ebb and flow, ebb and flow. But um, the amount of, you know, CNBC guests saying it's going to 500,000 and such is getting a little um, nauseating. But at the same time, you're out. Yeah, it feels good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, a, a commodity question. I should say country specific uh, question because it's commodity rich. Um, Australia and its proximity, oh, obviously. Gosh. I haven't looked at Australia in a long time. Okay. Do you, and do you trade currencies at all? The currency pairs, any of that jazz? I did. I did uh, 2013 through 17 or 18. I traded a lot of FX. Uh, I haven't recently. Uh, I've been trying to um, pick a top in the Canadian dollar with no success whatsoever. Um, you know, the Canadian dollar is really, they, they call that currency pair the truth. Because um, the Canadian dollar is the most correlated to U.S. stocks. So if you want to know when U.S. stocks are going to sell off, watch the Canadian dollar. And that's heavily tied to the oil trade. Yeah. Very strongly. So is that one of the reasons why you, you follow it? Because it's kind of a, a lead or lead indicator for what oil is going to do or it's it follows. What's your, Actually, what's your experience I, I with it? I think it's, um, I, th I think Canada is less about oil than it used to be. I think it's less energy dependent than it used to be. If you go back six or seven years ago, I think that was more true, but I think it's less true today. Hmm. So you have the 
inflation perspective that we're going to still grind a little bit higher, but you're not too worried about it spiking, correct? Yep. You have sentiment read that is, you know, manic markets are bad for markets and the turn is likely this year. But the other part of that is you're not seeing a quick recovery like we had last year after the COVID and the stimulus and all that, even though you do expect, an, uh, you know, stimu stimulus bills get passed, infrastructure bills get passed, but you still see some, some sideways grind versus higher. Is that correct? As far as yep. market call? Yeah. Yeah. Very bullish gold, silver miners, yeah. um, little uranium for the past year, which is a, a fabulous, I believe as well, platinum um, as well as oil. So we're aligned on that for the past few months. Definitely the, the value rotation. Do you own any growth stocks at all? I, I sold them all. So no big tech and they've been grinding sideways really, except for Microsoft and Google, yeah. but I mean, still big tech relative to um, value. You have, you have no exposure for momentum. No big tech, nothing. No. Not your cup of tea. All right, let's see what the other question was. Hold on. And how much of the new, uh, Jonathan's really, by the way, appreciative of your taking your time. And he's one that has followed you for years. Um, it was great. Uh, how much of the new market participation, you know, this free to trade order flow, the Robin Hoods, the Futu, um, you know, the Chinese Robin Hood uh, is a real, you know, real issue in your opinion, as far as all this new free commission trading, um, will it be squashed? Just basically, what's, what's, your, what's your sense there? Well, I, I think what it means is, is that I, I like to talk about something called hidden gamma, and I'm not talking about actual option gamma, okay? This is, has nothing to do with options. But if the market goes down 20%, then you have all this sort of latent order flow that is going to happen from these retail investors that start to panic and that's going to pick up speed. So a market that goes down 15 to 20% could quickly go down 30% or more mm -hmm. because of that hidden gamma. Um, so I call that, it muscle memory. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the influence of retail here. I mean, it works on the upside, but it also works on the downside. And, you know, in the same way that they piled on to Paul's in GameStop or this DNN, you know, uh, uranium miner today, they can also pile into VXX and UVXY. Yeah. So that would be the unwind that would be very dangerous for market structure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had it, um, Jonathan has also mentioned before this kind of gamification of the market where the retail traders, very savvy in gaming, and I'm not talking gaming stocks, but just in their ability to flip and move quickly um, and pile on, right? So this kind of social media, um, you know, Reddit signal and such, the, the social media mob and the gamification is also a very unknown um, component. Fed, Fed never thought about that. <laughs> Market makers certainly didn't expect what happened in January to their to their book. So yeah. is, is that something that you uh, think about? Because that is something I definitely think about, the gamification of these retail traders coming in and well, doing short-term damage. I've, I've written a couple of pieces on Bloomberg about Robinhood, about commission-free trading. I haven't really written about the gamification of trading, but it's all a profoundly negative influence. It's, it's a negative influence. So that's the question. Will they come back? 
You know, if they if we have a real washout, will they come back? No, they won't. They you won't. don't think so? Okay. That is that is it. I I went through all my questions that I wanted to ask you, and you are awesome as I expected. In uh, you know, transparency. Um, I appreciate very much the time to kind of share what your thoughts were for the market um, and then drill down into the kind of the sector moves that you have made, where you're holding um, and where you're obviously out. And we're getting some good positive feedback. One, in which was really nice, um, 